You're listening to the Weekly Wrap-Up on Sprott Money News. Welcome to another edition of Sprott Money's Weekly Wrap-Up. This is Cam Hisari filling in for Craig Hemke. This week's special guest is Peter Bukvar, who is the Chief Investment Officer of Bleakley Advisory Group and the editor of The Book Report. Welcome to the show, Peter, and thanks for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me on. Now, before we start, just a reminder that if you enjoy today's podcast, please like, share, and subscribe. Also, make sure to check out our monthly Ask the Expert and Precious Metals Projection series. All right, Peter, there's a lot of talk about the global tax agreement endorsed by the G20. The deal would impose a global minimum tax on corporations of at least 15%. Now, given U.S. midterm elections are next year and the European Union countries don't have a unified position on this as countries like Ireland are beneficiaries of low tax policies, do you think it's likely that there will be a deal? Uh, I, I'm, I'm mixed on it. I, I think that, uh, at least in the U.S. Congress, it's going to be considered a treaty. So you're going to need uh, two-thirds of Congress to pass it, or two-thirds of the Senate. Um, I'm not sure the actual protocol with the House. Maybe it's two-thirds there as well. And they're just not the votes. So I, I think right now this is more theater than anything. Uh, and it's not something that's going to happen this year or even next year. So... While it's it's gaining some press, of course, and um, uh, and a lot of talking points, I think the actual nuts and bolts of getting it passed uh, are, are pretty slim. Completely agreed. Peter, given the U.S. is 7 million jobs short of where it was in February 2020 and inflation is spiking, do you think we're seeing signs of stagflation? Uh, I definitely do. Uh, and keep in mind, a lot of those uh, 7 million are gain, are getting unemployment benefits of some sort. So uh, there's not necessarily lost income by them not working, at least in, in about half the states left and, and, and the rest is September. Uh, and then, of course, through end of the year, there's a child tax credit. So uh, we have to understand that, that just because you are unemployed doesn't mean you're not actually having money. Uh, now, maybe it's not as much as you did before, but uh, there is a level of income that's being sustained because of the uh, the, the government transfer payments. Uh, so to the point about stagflation, we are seeing multiple stagflationary type situations. I mean, we saw home price gains that were so aggressive that that in itself helped to slow the pace of transactions because buyers you know, called a timeout, essentially. Uh, you have builders that can't deliver enough homes because they can't get enough materials or labor. That is a stagflation or type situation. You have auto plants that are having to pause uh, for, for weeks at a time assembly lines because they can't get enough parts, they can't get enough semiconductors. That's a stagflation or type situation. Uh, you have uh, uh, shortages in just about every single good that's out there. Uh, so any part of that supply uh, chain to a finished product, uh, things get backed up. If you are a even a service provider of some sort that relies on ins installation or something, uh, well, chances are it's going to take you time to get your uh, parts to install. Uh, this is all slowing growth, this inflationary environment that's being driven by shortages of a variety of different things, including labor. Do you think the market is underestimating the inflation shock we're experiencing? 
I think that if you look at, there was a Bank America survey that I saw uh, a bunch of weeks ago that uh, they said 72% think that inflation is transitory, however you want to define transitory. Uh, I, I, I think inflation is never transitory. It's just the rate of change that is, is what the debate is. And with respect to services inflation, there's nothing transitory about that. Is that, uh, that, that has risen almost at a near 3% pace annualized uh, in the 20 years leading up to COVID. It's been the good side that has seen basically no inflation on average uh, for reasons of technology, production, efficiency, and so on. So uh, I think that most people weren't around in the 1970s. Either they were a kid or they weren't born that are in the financial markets. They have no idea uh, about inflation that remains sticky and persistent. So I don't think we're prepared for that. Certainly, the Federal Reserve is not prepared for that, nor is, is the European Central Bank, uh, who seems to be as dovish as we are here. Uh, so there is an acknowledgement of what we're seeing right now, but I think the nonchalance about how long it will last and just the assumption that it's just going to go away. Very interesting. What will happen to the U.S. economy when the stimulus checks run out in September? Well, as I mentioned, it's going to be replaced in a way for in this child tax credit where um, there'll be a lot of families that are still going to be getting money. So uh, we hope that uh, those that were taking their time and, and filling not, some of the 9.2 million job openings that we have, that's a record high, that this will be the incentive for them to go out and fill some of those jobs. Uh, we are seeing, obviously, uh, some states that are that are cutting it off prematurely, and we are seeing from studies I've seen that you are seeing a pickup in in, in job hirings uh, or at least job applications uh, as as those benefits wear off. So that's the hope. Uh, it's obviously been a social experiment where where there's been a lot of debate, and uh, I look forward to uh, September to see uh, where continuing claims go uh, in, in in response. Peter. Given the Fed is in uncharted territory, do you believe the Fed is deliberately using ambiguous words as a way of hedging? Uh, well, yeah, I mean, they are winging it, but that's that's been monetary policy for a while. But currently, examples of winging it is the Fed talks about not changing policy until substantial progress has been made. But Jay Powell in his testimony this week admitted he doesn't know how to define that. Uh, they are willing to tolerate inflation above their 2% target for, quote-unquote, some time, and he can't define what sub-time means. Uh, they claim that inflation is transitory, but he can't define the word transitory. So that means that they're winging it. But again, they've been winging it for a while, uh, unfortunately, as opposed to letting the markets decide the price of money. You have, obviously, these, these government bureaucrats that are trying to do that. Uh, therefore, inherent is that in that is, is a winging it. Uh, because, yeah, they have their own models, but there's a lot of emotion uh, in institutional group think that gets involved here. I mean, you're seeing it writ large right now. So Jay Powell is, is definitely afraid of presiding over any sort of market or economic accident uh, as his term ends in February 2022. Now, he may, if he wants the job, he certainly doesn't want to see an accident. And if he doesn't want the job and he wants to hand the keys over, well, he doesn't want to see an accident towards the end of his term. So there's a, an actual internal conflict between that institutional group think of a bureaucrat, uh, which is essentially what they are, 
and what they actually should be doing with respect to monetary policy in the face of the economic data that we currently see. Do you believe the Fed is in a damned if they do and damned if they don't situation? They are, but they themselves put them in this situation. Uh, there's no uh, easy medicine to wean off an economy and, and markets to the extreme uh, monetary policy that we've seen. But on the other hand, if you just let it continue, you just build up these these further excesses. And now we're obviously seeing that manifested in actual consumer price inflation, which ironically is what they've been rooting for anyway, I think mistakenly. Uh, so that's why this inflation story is so big, because since 07, when, when, when Bernanke went hog wild with monetary policy, uh, they've been able to get away with it, so to speak, uh, since then, because inflation numbers have been low. Once inflation starts to uh, sort of get un, uh, unstable, there, then it, it handcuffs uh, central bankers' ability to continue on uh, because the market starts to force their hand, the economy starts to force their hand, Main Street starts to force their hand. I mean, that's the thing about inflation right now is it's not just a, a theoretical debate on, on Wall Street desks, uh, it, it is affecting Main Street. And we saw uh, politicians both on both sides talk about them getting more calls from their constituency uh, about inflation, particularly on the housing side. Given housing prices have been soaring, do you expect any measures from central banks in an attempt to cool housing prices? Well, they're, they're, the only way that they can cool it is, is, is if they start raising interest rates. And that's clearly not what they want to do. Uh, tapering is not going to cool housing because it's not going to lead to a change in interest rates. And if anything, history has shown, at least over the last 15 years of QE, is that when you, when you take it off, yield curves flatten. So long rates actually fall. So it won't be until the Fed actually starts raising interest rates that would be the reason to cool the housing market. But we know that's not going to happen. So that, that's the problem with monetary policy is that central bankers have an inflated view of their ability to stimulate economic growth and don't appreciate enough how little they can do that, but at the same time causing all these outsides imbalances, particularly in housing, that then makes it even more difficult for them to eventually uh, get out of this policy when the time comes. Peter, can the Fed start tapering at some point without causing a market crash? Well, crash is a strong word. Uh, I'll say that it's impossible for them to progress through tapering and not have a market correction. Uh, there, the, the monetary pol easy monetary policy and the level of market prices are, are well intertwined. You cannot separate the two. Uh, the Fed somehow has this belief that the longer they wait, somehow the easier this process is going to be. And an analogy I like to give is if Mike Tyson is going to tell you He's going to punch you in the face and he gives you plenty of warning and he communicates that punch is coming. It's not going to make it any less painful than if he just did it out of nowhere. So I, I think that's one of the fallacies in, in, in Fed thinking uh, that if they just wait long enough and they're just patient long enough, that somehow they're going to be able to uh, exit this uh, without any harm done. And I think that's just an impossibility. Has their policies pushed desperate yield-seeking seniors into unsuitable investments such as junk bonds? For sure. And this has been happening now since the mid-2000s when there was a grab for yield that uh, 
obviously manifested itself in in in, in the housing bubble. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm the CIO of a wealth management firm. Uh, we have a lot of clients that are desperate for income. Uh, you have 10,000 baby boomers in the U.S. Ret- uh, turning 65 every single day. I mean, there is a constant discussion of how do we get clients more income. But the problem is uh, you have to take on more risk and, and, and more tolerance for volatility in your portfolio in order to do that. And they're just a, a portion of retirees that, that just don't have the stomach for it. But then on the other hand, have no other means of income other than what their portfolio derives and their social security check. So it, it, it becomes very difficult. And, and, and it really is, it, it is a shame um, that this is still going on after all these years. Indeed it is. Stanley Drunkenmiller recently stated, I think it is more likely than not within 15 years we lose reserve currency status is it probable for the u.s to lose its world reserve currency status uh i don't necessarily think we lose it i think there's a possibility that we share it uh with the chinese i think that they have made it uh, a goal of theirs to uh, be treated uh, on equal footing uh, or at least uh, a level of respect that they feel like they haven't had before. And whether it's the shift to a digital currency in China that will help to uh, establish that, uh, I think that um, the competition for that reserve currency status uh, will be intense from China. Now, in terms of losing it, I, I, I know we have a history of countries that do that, and I think that if left to its own devices, we'd be headed in that direction considering the lack of respect that we, that we treat our currency with uh, when you look at our debts and deficits, um, our budget deficit, our trade deficit, our current account deficit, and so on, uh, that we don't necessarily deserve it from that perspective. But uh, unfortunately, there aren't other many choices you know, in terms of replacement. With the U.S. having a debt to GDP of 128%, how long can the U.S. continue living beyond its means? I don't know. Uh, as long as people continue to, to finance it, uh, it's hard to answer. I mean, in the mid-1980s, uh, there were a lot of complaints about the skyrocketing U.S. budget deficit and debts. And here we are 35 years later. That's a valid point. Where do you see the U.S. dollar going? Um, I think big picture, the dollar is going to continue to go down. Uh, you can draw a, a pretty good long-term chart uh, overlaying the dollar index versus uh, the trade and uh, budget deficit, and they pretty much follow each other. Uh, I'm sure we'll get some bouts of, of dollar bounces uh, when, when, when sentiment and positioning gets off sides. And, um, but I, I, I think that uh, the dollar is headed lower over a period of time. Uh, I think that, um, you know, getting back to what we discussed earlier, the Fed will be dragging their feet uh, in terms of removing accommodation. I mean, compare it to some of what other central banks are doing. Uh, there was a member of the Bank of England today that, that said that um, today being July 15th, that uh, it's time to start pulling back on QE. Now, the Bank of England has a plan to end it by year end, but he came out and said we may end it much sooner than that. The Bank of Korea is setting up for an August rate hike. Uh, the Bank of Canada, uh, again, trimmed their weekly QE. I think there's now pressure on the Reserve Bank of Australia if they can get over you know, the Delta variant in some way. Uh, that they're going to slow down the pace of QE. And um, I think that's going to be a growing theme. But the ECB, the, BO, the BOJ, and, and the Fed 
uh, will certainly be in the back of the line uh, in terms of removing that. Now, technically, the Bank of Japan has slowed because they focus more on yield curve control, which allows them to to buy less. Uh, so in terms of rate of change and expanding the balance sheets, you know, the Fed and the ECB clearly win that race right now. And therefore, at least for the dollar, uh, you know, that, that that's not very positive for one's currency. Very sad, but true. Peter, with many governments demonizing fossil fuels while praising ESG, do you believe silver will be a beneficiary of new government policies? Uh, I, I think it's very interesting how silver has sort of carved out uh, a, a new um, level of, of, of usage of it. Obviously, we, we relied a lot on, on the camera and film for uh, uh, eating up um, silver supply. Uh, but a lot of these new renewable world that we're in and, and, and demands for it, uh, silver is going to be a very interesting industrial commodity. I mean, silver is just so interesting to me because it has that 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 mix that really, I mean, outside of maybe palladium and platinum, but to a much greater extent silver, that you have this industrial demand. And to your point about ever-increasing industrial demand and in a lot of this new 21st century renewable world that we want to transition to, but also having that monetary aspect, that that non-fiat, that money, real hard money aspect, uh, and I think that 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 sort of dual demand picture makes it a really interesting um, commodity in today's world, or or currency if you want to call it that too. Fair enough. Time for my favorite question: What do you believe is the most lucrative sector right now, and which sector would you not touch with a ten-foot pole? Uh, I'm still pretty bullish on energy stocks. I think there's just going to be uh, a multi-year lack of investment uh, that's going to manifest itself into ever higher prices. And a lot of energy stocks are trading below where they were in February 2020. Uh, I still think that agriculture has more legs to the bull market. Uh, there's still a lot of doubt about that, but um, I find fertilizer stocks pretty attractive. Obviously very bullish on gold and silver, particularly the miners. Uh, I still think that there's some good value stocks in the U.S., but you know people are, are are jazzed up by tech and the excitement of tech and 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 the gains that we've seen in tech and and you know boring companies are um, paying good dividend yields and trading at a inexpensive valuation are just not exciting to many investors and certainly not that exciting to um, you know many option traders who want to see quick moves. But I think that um, in this kind of environment where we've had such outperformance of growth versus value, that values, its values turn to, to outperform when you're looking at over the next decade. Plus, I'm pretty bullish on, on Asian markets and, and parts of Europe, uh, again, because of attractive valuations. Now, in terms of what I wouldn't touch, the 10-foot poles, they're, they're, they're U.S. technology companies that are just very exciting in their product lines, but a lot of companies that don't make money uh, and that are trading at such egregious valuations that I don't see how they really ever grow into them. So while I would never short any of them, and I'm, I'm fascinated by the technologies, I just think from a valuation perspective, it's, um, it's just a riskier place to play. Peter, the markets have been volatile to say the least. What do you see the rest of the summer looking like? I think the rest of the summer, and certainly through the rest of the year, it, it's you can throw out your analysis of GDP growth and earnings. It's all gonna come down to uh, the direction of the inflation statistics in the months to come and what the Fed's response function is. Uh, you know, I made the point earlier that for 10 plus years, central banks have been able to get away with anything they wanted because inflation 
uh, has been low. Uh, and, and that has allowed them to sort of set their own timeline on how they implement policy, uh, both aggressively with easing and an eventual tightening. But if you get persistent inflation, that potentially could take away their own internal timeline, and that timeline by the markets would get forced upon them. Uh, and not just by the markets, it'll get forced upon them by pressure from the uh, politicians, pressure from, uh, from, from the economy in the sense of, of inflation slowing things down. So I think that we've already had four hot core CPI numbers where core CPI in those four months are annualizing an 8.4% rate. I think that once you get the inflation stats in the next couple months, there'll be no more uh, base effect excuses, uh, and, and we'll, we'll see how sticky uh, this inflation is, which I think it will prove to be. Uh, therefore, the Fed can keep talking about talking about and talking about things, uh, but the stats will, will sort of force upon them uh, and, and at the beginning of a taper. And keep in mind, even if a taper is still going to last a year, assuming they do $10 billion a month, and that's even before discussion of when they might raise interest rates. So you want to talk about behind the curve. They're not just behind the cur- a curve. Let's take, like, let's take a street. They're not behind a street curve. Uh, you know, they're like um, 100 steps behind uh, uh, in, in terms of curves. So uh, but to, to your original question, because I know I'm rambling on here, uh, it'll be the inflation numbers, it'll be the reaction in interest rates, and what the Fed's response function will be. In two weeks, or are they going to announce uh, that taper will be beginning in September at the, the July meeting, or are they going to tell us that they're still discussing it and they'll let us know again in September? Uh, that will determine the rest of the summer and the likely into the fall, the market uh, behavior. Peter, thanks for sharing your wisdom with us. Please let our viewers know where they can find your work. Well, if they want to see my daily writings, uh, they can subscribe to bookreport.com. Uh, it's B-O-O-C-K, report, and they can trial it also. Uh, and uh, as we are a wealth management firm, if they're interested in wealth management services, uh, they can check us out at bleakly.com. On a final note, it tends to be true that what the wise do in the beginning, fools do in the end. With yields near zero, Japanization may very well be the future of the bond market. Unfortunately, the stock market is also extremely frothy, according to the Buffett indicator. Yet silver is still far from its all-time high of $49 and change, which occurred in 2011 and 1980. Given the high demand for silver and limited supply, many believe it's an absolute no-brainer at its current price. If you haven't positioned yourself yet to be a beneficiary of the coming reset, please call us at one 861 775 to discuss all your bullion options in depth. Alternatively, you can shop online at SprottMoney.com. Well, that's it for this edition of Sprott Money's Weekly Wrap-Up. I hope you found it of value. Please like, share, and subscribe, and see you next week.